Our God and our Father, we come to you through the gospel. We come to you through the merits and the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We come to you through what he accomplished in his perfect life and his atoning death and his glorious ascension and his intercession for us. That is why we can come to you and we can stand before the throne of grace unashamed. We come to you by the power of your spirit that has drawn us together and drawn us irresistibly to Christ, having exposed our sins and shown us our need and the solution that's found in Jesus. We thank you this morning for the gospel. That is our heart's cry. The wandering heart, the heart that is prone to wander, is drawn back by remembering the gospel, not by trying to achieve a works-based righteousness on our own. We are forever drawn and sanctified by the work of one. Not our works, but the work of God the Son. We thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that we have your revelation. We thank you that you have brought us here today as your people to be washed once again, to be immersed into your word and reminded of where our cleansing comes from. We pray that you would cause Christ to increase and we would decrease this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Gospel of Mark announces to us that the content of the gospel is immutable. It's unchangeable. The good news from God about His salvation never changes. We have that guaranteed to us in the four accounts of the gospels. The power of the gospel itself is also immutable. It is unchangeable. The good news always produces the same thing in every generation, every culture, every context. It's transcultural, transgenerational. It produces repentance, forgiveness, confession, obedience, and rejoicing in God's people. The gospel from God about Jesus Christ does not need improvement. It needs announcement. The good news from God proclaims that man's neediness and God's promises meet together at the cross of Calvary. We see our greatest need, we see our sinful condition in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross in our place as our substitute. Their truth about us and the grace of God is revealed to us from the cross. And Mark tells us, again, that God's message, God's gospel is how he would phrase it. God's gospel does not need improvement, but that it is worthy of announcement. That's what Mark is telling us in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1. He announces that to us today. If you would, please open God's Word with me to Mark 1. And let's hear God announce the gospel to us one more time through His messenger, Mark, and His other messenger that's mentioned here, John the Baptizer. This is the Word of the living God to us this morning. So please listen carefully. Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, 
make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for or because of the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will have the greater ministry. John says. The Gospel of Mark begins by stating that Jesus is God and that God is coming to man, according to what the prophets had gave to us in the Old Testament through the revelation of God Himself. And that God would send before the greater prophet, Jesus, send before Him a lesser prophet, John, to make this announcement known to men and prepare the way of the Lord, prepare His people Israel God's people in the nation Israel, to repent of their sins and run to their Messiah, embrace their Messiah, because He is greater than the prophets who came before Him. He is the one who comes with a baptism unto repentance that will actually cleanse us from the inside out, which is what John's baptism represented, what it represented Christ fulfilled. And we covered some of this last week as we covered the first five verses. And as I stated last week, the text tells us here that John announced the good news to God's people, number one, prophetically to point to God's Messiah in verses 1 through 3. And John announced the good news to God's people also powerfully to point to man's need of God's mercy. He called them to repentance in verses 4 and 5 because they had offended their God, just as the Gentiles had. So even sons of Abraham needed to repent and believe in what God has announced through the prophets. It was by faith He was calling them to be saved, not through works or through their genealogy. And today in Mark 1, 6 through 8, we're going to see that the good news is also announced, number one, plainly, plainly to point to God's message in verse 6. And number two, The good news is announced primarily to point to Jesus' majesty and greater ministry in verses 7 through 8. That's your outline this morning. And I pray that it is derived from the text and will bring God glory as we explore the text. Mark 1.6 tells us that the gospel is announced to God's people, God's elect, God's chosen people, those who had ears to hear and would believe, be forgiven, and brought into the kingdom. He announced the good news... Plainly, number one, plainly, in order to point to God's glorious message, not point at the messenger. We need to remember that this morning. We are to declare a clear and concise and plain message about what God has done in Christ Jesus. We shouldn't be looking to messengers. We look to the message, which is the gospel from God. Verse 6 says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. The point of this is is he was not necessarily impressive. He was a rather 
strange man. He was a rather different man. He was just a rather plain man as compared to the pharisaical leaders and religious leaders of Israel who were impressive in their dress, impressive in their stature. He was a wild man in the wilderness, but he hearkened them back to God's work in the past where the prophets would stand up and cry out in the wilderness that Israel needed to repent and return to their God. And they remembered that, but it was a very plain message. The, the prophets were always plain people, simple people, not impressive, because God intended for the message to be the emphasis, not the messenger. And pastors need to remember this today. Preachers need to remember this today. Evangelists need to remember this today. You need to remember this today. The power is not in your skill, your oratory. It is in the Word of God to bring people to salvation, not in your manipulation. And I think that this is given to us here very oddly, I think, in verse 6, this this description of John, just to point out the plainness and the the distinctness that John had in this society that was basically self-indulgent, seeking pleasure, he throws one out here that seems like an ascetic. He's, he's separated from everything. He's different, and he's just plain. There's nothing spectacular except his message. His message stands out, not himself. Verse 6 tells us that God's message came plainly, clothed in humility, not glamorously. God's message of good news came through what seemed foolish, to point past the messenger to the surpassing glory of the message. That is what we do in evangelism as well. That's what Paul talked about, and that's what Paul understood in 2 Corinthians. Go with me there, 2 Corinthians 4. He understood this principle. 2 Corinthians 4, 1. Paul understood that the important thing was not the messenger, but the message that was within him. 2 Corinthians 4, 1. The Apostle Paul writes this and says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, so he recognizes that his ministry, his calling, his gifting, his ability is from the undeserved favor and mercy of God. It's coming from God to him. That's what keeps him from losing heart. It's not up to him to manipulate people. It's up to him to be faithful to the message God gave him, and so it is with us. Verse 2 says, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Hmm. Plain speaking. He says, we're not trying to manipulate people or twist God's word to make it feel better to you, the sinner. We are actually speaking plainly. We're not tampering with this message from God. Verse 3 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. He is saying, if people don't understand it, I can't manipulate them into the kingdom. They're veiled because they are perishing. They are are in their sin and unwilling to repent and believe this message. He says in verse 4, here's the reason why. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. They're doubly blinded, actually. They blinded themselves with their own sin, their own depravity. And the God of this world, which would be Satan, has also blinded them by covering them up with pleasures aglore that they seem to believe that will seek, or they will seek rather than seeking the pleasures of the Lord God. 
It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They are enamored with the pleasures of this world and seek them because they cannot, by faith, see that there is a greater pleasure to come in Christ. Verse 5 says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Koryos, Lord, Master. You notice he doesn't say, we don't call you to believe that you need a Savior. He says, we're calling you to trust in your Master, the one who owns you when He calls you through our message. We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who, is, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, this treasure, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this in jars of clay, clay pots. I think that Martin Luther and I think that even the Apostle Paul would refer here in some ways to privy pots. Pots that are normally not filled with anything worthy but things defiled. But instead, because of the work of Christ, that has been removed and in its place has came the glorious gospel of Christ. And it's placed in a clay pot, a fragile pot, a non-beautiful pot to show that the surpassing power of the message belongs to God and not to us. God's not impressed with good-looking pots. It's His message that He wants proclaimed, not His messengers. It's not our style or our skill I mean, we should be working hard at presenting the gospel accurately, but it's not a matter of manipulation or a glamorous watering down of the message. It is to be faithful here to the message so that when people hear you, a clay pot, proclaim something that's greater than you, they cannot see you any longer, but they see God's glory surpassing you. They look to the message and not to the messenger. I think that's important in all gospel ministry. The content of the gospel can't be changed, and the way we present it cannot be changed either. We must be faithful to it so that people will hear it, hear it and be moved to salvation by God, not by our manipulation. I think we need to be plain spoken when we present the gospel. It's the gospel that changes the heart. It's God's word that penetrates. It's God's word that doesn't go out void. It accomplishes what he intends when it goes forth. It's not our ability to try to trick people into the kingdom, manipulate them. We need to be plain spoken. We need to let God speak and trust in the sufficiency of the scriptures, not in our skills. Go with me back to Mark 1.6. Mark 1.6 tells us that God's message came, came to Israel through a plain desert dweller, an unimpressive man. Humanly speaking, he was different, he was distinct, but he wasn't rock star material in Israel. He wasn't the kind of speakers they were used to. And that's actually what God used to draw people to hear him speak, but that wasn't the power of his ministry. It was the word he proclaimed. He was humble, he was nothing. This is the point here. He was dressed like a nomad, not like a king. And woe to preachers who want to be kings and not nomads. 
Woe to us if we want the praises of men when we present the gospel. We, we are doing our very least when we are faithful to our king presenting his message. We shouldn't pat ourselves on the back. It is the least we can do as slaves for Christ. And it is an honor for a slave to be given this message. John understood that because John, John had a right view of God, which gave him a right view of himself, and so he submitted his life completely to God's will, even to the point of living like a humble desert dweller. Look with me in 2 Kings. 2 Kings, chapter 1. I need you to understand something about John the Baptist's ministry. We know that his father received a revelation from an angel about what John would be called to do, how he would be set apart and distinct from others around him. And what that, was, what that was calling his parents to do is set up a standard of living for John that was at odds with the world. And at some point, if, I think if John had not been given this message from God, if this was purely just John's own desire to be known as the greatest prophet of God, as Jesus would call him, if that's all he wanted to know, he probably wouldn't have taken this path to get there. I think if it was up to John, he would not have planned to be a plain desert dweller. I don't think eating bugs and living off of honey water and standing in the wilderness was actually something that you shot for in Israel. It was something you had to be called to by God. John ends up doing exactly what the prophecy said he would do, even as a willing vessel as he grew older, because God had set him apart for this purpose. But he set him apart to be like the prophets of old, set apart and simple, plain. 2 Kings 1, 7 describes Elijah this way. He says, he said in verse 7, he said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? This is, he had received this message, and he says, What kind of man was this? Describe this man to me. And in verse 8, he says, They answered him, He wore a garment of hair and a leather or a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Now, Elijah was just a simple man. This, this clothing was the sort of the garb of the desert dweller, the garb of the nomad. It was actually camel's hair that was actually braided together or woven together to make an outfit to be basically able to withstand the desert life, hold up well, keep him warm at night, but hold up well in this, in this heat and intense desert life. But it was plain. It wasn't prestigious. Yet we know that God used Elijah in magnificent ways to point to his message. And so it was with John. John lived and dressed a simple, plain way. So that, again, he would not be praised, but the message he proclaimed would be majestic in the eyes of Israel. John also ate simple food. It says in the text that he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. He ate locusts. He ate grasshoppers. And when it says he drank honey. It actually means sort of a, a honey water. It was a water they would sweeten with honey. He survived on that. It gave him sugar, gave him energy, and the locusts obviously gave him protein. Look with me at Leviticus. Leviticus 11 actually sanctioned this kind of diet, sanctioned the eating of grasshoppers. Again, this is not the choice of most people in Israel, though it was allowed. It would not have been what you would have necessarily chosen when you sat down for dinner, had it been up to you alone. It was plain, and it was simple, and it was something you could find in the desert. 11.21 says, 
Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locusts of any kind, the bald locusts of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. Aren't you glad to know this? They pull the legs off, pull the head off most likely, and what comes with it, and they grill it up. And this, again, was a plain meal. There was nothing fancy here. It was simplistic. It was bare minimum. And again, John's dress and John's food, John's life, everything about John, including the message he proclaimed, set him apart from most of Israel. God had chosen all through the Old Testament, and even today, including us, the not many noble, the not many wise, not the strong, but the broken, the weak, the feeble, those who actually know that they need a Savior so that His glory would come through us and not to us. If we're not careful, we'll begin to think when we're very productive in ministry or productive in evangelism that the the glory belongs to us. And we need to remember that we are just plain clay pots. The surpassing glory belongs to the message from God. I think it was John's plain, unvarnished preaching of God's Word that actually set him apart the most. It's the plain, unvarnished preaching of God's Word that drew men to repent of their sins, confess their faith in God's promises, and obey God through baptism. It wasn't John's manipulation of the truth. It wasn't John trying to lower the standard of becoming pragmatic to allow people to come in and feel comfortable so he could ease them into the kingdom. It wasn't through pragmatic schemes that he wooed them into the desert. So much like today in the church, we have people who want to lower the standard of preaching the word to make unbelievers feel comfortable in the church. And they want to feed the goats and starve the sheep. John said, I love God's glory too much for that. If I glorify Him through the unvarnished preaching of His Word, His people will come and they will do the work that they're called to do in the world. They will go out. They will proclaim truth that was announced by the one that gave them this voice in the wilderness of saying, God's glory is supreme. Listen to what He has to say in His Word and return to Him. Repent of your sins. But for John to do this, I think John had to have great confidence in God's Word. This man's entire life was dedicated and set apart to being distinct. He didn't run around saying, well, people in the world ought to treat me better because I'm the messenger of God. No, he actually said, I expect them to despise me, but I want them to hear me. I really don't care what they think about me, but I want them to hear what I have to say to them about their souls and about our God. He had confidence that God's Word would do the work and that He was called to be faithful. We need to have that confidence. We need to recognize that even though we are not John the Baptist, neither will we ever be John the Baptist. We are all messengers of God and we are given the gospel that even John didn't see the full picture of. We need to recognize because you've been given that message You are called to be the distinct messenger of God. And you are to be distinct by having a confidence in His Word and recognizing that your life doesn't belong to you anymore. Your life belongs to your King. And this life is passing. It's a vapor. And one day we will all stand before the King 
And we've been able to throw down these crowns before the king, the, the crowns that we received from the king for doing his business, for serving him faithfully. We will be able to honor him by bringing them back to our king. And we want to be found faithful to do that. Even though we fall short, we want to pursue this. Like John, setting aside everything, our rights, our privileges, for the sake of our king, for his glory, and for the good of the lost people around us. Well, back in Mark 1.6, I think that Mark is simply and plainly teaching us that God's messengers must be humble and they must be dedicated to God's word because, again, Mark is making sure we know through John that the power of salvation is in the message, not the messenger. And we see that repeated not only here in Mark 1.6, but also go with me to Romans 1.16. The Apostle Paul makes this clear. I think the Apostle Paul understood that Throughout his ministry, it wasn't up to him to bring about the conversion of sinners of the glory of God. It was up to him just to be faithful to his glorious God and watch God work through his means, his word. That's what Paul says. It's, he says, the power of salvation is in the message, not in me. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That is, that is the objective truth that's focused on the work, the person and the work of Jesus Christ who was God the Son who left heaven's glory, came into the earth, became a man, lived a righteous life in our place, died our death, rose victoriously to justify us before God and bring us forgiveness and repentance of our sins. He says, I'm not ashamed of that message. It's a message. Have you heard people say, basically, that you know, if, if, if you need to go out and minister, you need to go out and, and love people and, if necessary, use words? What? You don't love people unless you use this word, unless you're proclaiming to them the necessity of the gospel, exposing to them their sinful condition. They will not be loved by you in this life or in the future. Love speaks. Love points to the gospel of Christ. It takes action. It takes obedience and dedication to that word. But he says, I'm not ashamed of that word because in it, or because it is the power of God for salvation for, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's the proclamation of this message that exposes that we are sinners and exposes that the only way a sinner can be washed clean is by looking to the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. His substitutionary atonement on the cross is the only means of washing away our sins, bringing us before God. That is a message that needs to be proclaimed. It's a message that's confrontational like it was for John. But if you've already died with Christ at the cross, whatever people do to you in this life doesn't really matter, does it? Your life is hidden in Christ. Do the work of an evangelist. Do the work you're called to do as Christians, as witnesses. Be faithful with confidence that it's God who's working through the proclamation of truth about Jesus Christ. That will save people, not your skill. Now, again, I'm not saying not to be skillful. For you to be faithful, you have to be skillful in how you handle the text. What I'm saying is not in your skill to manipulate people, to make people feel bad or guilty. It's not your job to do that. That's the Holy Spirit's work. You proclaim truth, you let the Holy Spirit work on the heart. You just be faithful and watch God work through His Word. Now, look at first. Corinthians also says regarding this. 1 Corinthians 2. This is Paul again reiterating his own thoughts on this. 2, 1 through 5. 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And what he's saying is, I didn't come like the guys in your culture. I didn't come like the men in your culture who come to debate and to speak with philosophical language and flowery language and, and win the debate because of their ability to actually sound more astute. You know, he goes, I came to you with a simple message, a plain message. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, when I say it's a simple and a plain message, that doesn't mean it's not complex. Because he said, I did know something. I had gnosis, knowledge. I had epignosis, intimate knowledge about one thing. The person and the work of the Lord and Savior, Messiah, Jesus. I know something. And what I know, I'm going to proclaim to you in detail. I'm not going to try to debate you over here on all these issues and all these issues over here. I'm going to speak to you about something you can't really debate. You're a sinner. You will stand before a holy and righteous God unless you are covered in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. You will stand guilty, condemned, and separated for eternity. Repent. Turn away from sin. Turn to the one who died in the place of sinners. Trust in His work. And through His incarnate work, not yours, you will find forgiveness and salvation. I trust in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Verse 3 says, And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith not, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Pray that this would be the case. We don't want people putting their faith in our wisdom. We want people to hear what we say and find that to be true by looking to God's Word. So we want to point people past us to the Savior, just as John did. That's what John the Baptist is doing. That's what Paul was doing. I think this is good news for you and I today. This tells me that we don't have to be, we don't have to be great speakers. We don't have to be rock star pastors with culturally cool ideas. No, we have to be faithful. We don't even have to be clever. We can, we can be blunt. We can be direct. We can be plain spoken. But we have to be faithful to speak the right things. Faithful to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faithful to speak God's word in love if we're going to be useful in God's kingdom. But you can do that. The weakest and the youngest Christian among us can do this. You don't have to be a superstar preacher to do this. You can be like a nomad in the wilderness who knows one thing. The Messiah is coming. Repent and turn to God and trust in His promises. It's that simple. Know the gospel. Know the gospel and watch God work through the proclamation of His Word. Because in preaching the gospel, God is glorified, the saints are edified, and what? The world is evangelized. Now go with me back to Mark. Mark 1, 7. Mark 1, 7 and 8 goes on further to say, after it describes John in verse 6, he goes on to say what John, John did in verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie I think here what Mark is showing us about John is something about his character. About the character of one who has been set apart by God. One who has been distinctly and plainly called into being a messenger of God. This is what should mark him out and you out as well. 
I think Mark teaches us that humility and dedication to plainly proclaiming God's word is what leads men and women past the messenger to the Lord Jesus. It's the second point here is that the gospel is announced to God's people, number two, primarily for this reason. The reason we preach the gospel, the reason we talk about the gospel, the reason John proclaimed the gospel to Israel is because they needed to see the Messiah. And it's announced to God's people today primarily to point to Jesus' majesty and His greater ministry. The gospel points to Jesus' superiority. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than John. He's greater than you. We need to point people to see His greatness, His majesty, and His greater ministry. He can accomplish what we can only proclaim. Get that? He does what we say, but not, it's not us doing it. It's Him working. John was symbolically baptizing people as they responded in repentance, showing what God was doing internally in them, but God wasn't using John to do the work of changing them on the inside. That was Jesus' work as he immersed them by the power of the Holy Spirit. But in verse 7, it speaks about how that John primarily pointed out Jesus' majesty. He did so by seeing Jesus with an appropriate view. He, he saw Jesus from a slave's perspective. Remember, John according to Jesus, is the greatest prophet ever born, ever born, greater than all the prophets, greater than Isaiah, greater than Moses. And yet John regards himself as an unworthy slave in comparison to Jesus. If you're going to primarily point people to Jesus, you better be primarily looking at yourself and seeing where you stand alongside Jesus. Do you regard yourself as his co-pilot, <laughs> which is heresy? Or do you see yourself as a mere servant, willing and listening to do whatever he calls you to do in this life? John recognized that. Mark tells us that John humbly recognizes Jesus' superior authority and his superior power. I think that's essential for any kind of gospel ministry. If you're going to evangelize people, you need to recognize your humble position before God. You and I, defiled dirt. Dirt, nothing more than clay pots. And yet God, in His mercy, has made us into vessels of glory by putting His message in us. Not so people will look to us, but look to Christ. That's if we're evangelizing. That's if we're edifying saints. Whatever we do, if you're parenting your children, working for your employer, whatever you're doing, you better be humble and recognize you're there by the grace of God and by His power. He has placed you sovereignly in whatever position you're in to be a witness for Him, pointing to Him. John's preaching primarily pointed to the one who was mightier than John. That's the way our ministry should be. We should decrease and Christ should increase. John 3 says this, John 3, 25. Go with me there. John 3, 25. This was John's attitude. John's humility drove people past him to Jesus. What a, what a great pattern of ministry that is for us. If you have a right view of who you are in relation to God and His grace, you are a recipient, you are a beggar with a hands outstretched attitude saying, whatever I have comes from you because I don't earn anything, I don't deserve anything from you. 
And if I can do something for you, I am willing. I am nothing more than a slave. And if you would use me, I would give everything in my being to be used by you. So that people would see the one who called me. That's what John says here in 325. Now, discussion arose between some of John's disciples over a Jew, and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi or teacher, he who was with you across the Jordan, that's Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Or obviously, there's a little bit of friction here. There's a little bit of jealousy here. Well, wait a minute. The one you talked about, look, he's taking all of our disciples. All those people are going to him and they're no longer looking to you. And John's happy about that. I think about that. If you're witnessing to someone and you're sharing the gospel with someone and you get through and God places them in a great gospel-centered church and it's not here, are you still happy for them? We need to be. All you are is pointing them to Christ. He'll place them where they need to be. But here, here in verse 27, John answers. He says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear, wit- bear me witness that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent before him. I'm the messenger. The one who, is, who has the bride is the bridegroom. In other words, the people who are being drawn to him are drawn to him because they belong to him. They are the bride, and he is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Oh, John was happy that Jesus had arrived. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. This is the attitude of every servant of God throughout church history. When you recognize that the bridegroom is greater than his friend, all you want to do is point people to him. You will decrease. And one of my prayers when I stand in the pulpit, one of my, mine and Nate's prayers when we stand in the pulpit is that, Lord, Please, in this pulpit, help me and Nate to fade away and let them hear and see Jesus. Let them hear His Word, feel His Spirit, be washed in that, and let us decrease. Let the people walk away saying, I heard Christ. I heard the Lord speak through His Word. Not I heard a good sermon or I heard a good talk, but I heard God speak clearly through His Word. That's our prayer. That should be the prayer of all of us should be the goal of all of our ministry. We should drive people to the Savior. Not our ministries, not our programs, but to Jesus. Just remember, all those programs and ministries we do, those will all be forgotten. But the gospel of Jesus Christ will never be forgotten. That is an eternal message. Our programs really don't make that big a difference. It's the message and the content that's within that program is what matters. So let's have programs, but... Have them Christ-centered, gospel-saturated. Ministries that are gospel-saturated will endure, and they will drive people to the Savior. That's what John did. He drove to Christ because he understood that Jesus' majesty and Jesus' ministry was greater than his own. He understood that he wasn't worthy, though he was the messenger. He wasn't even worthy, in his own opinion, to be a co-laborer with Christ. He considered himself less than Jesus' slave. And that's what you, need to, you need to pray that for your ministers, for your pastors. You need to pray that for all ministers. We would don the attitude of John the Baptist when it comes to serving the church. Let us decrease so that Christ would increase. Now look at verse 7 in Mark 1. 
Mark 1, 7. John, the greatest, again, prophet in the, in the Bible. Here, John is bowing at Christ's majesty. He is bowing low in humility. What a great example of a minister of God. What a great example for us to follow. When we're called to do something spectacular, we must always begin on our face before God in humility, giving thanks to Him, confessing that we are not worthy to be here. Speaking of this, he says, The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. That's humility. See, in Mark's day and in John's day, when a, when a rabbi, when a teacher would take disciples, or basically the disciples would seek out the rabbi and he would say, Yeah, you can be my, my student, my mathetes, my disciple. And yet in Christ, we see a whole paradigm shift. Jesus actually pursues his disciples. He calls them by name. He calls his disciples to himself. And the disciple or mathetes would do whatever their rabbi tells them to do. A, a rabbi would call them to carry their bags, carry their equipment, carry whatever they had. They would gladly do that because they're thinking, we're going to learn something about servanthood here. And a disciple would do nearly anything for him except one thing. Unstrap a filthy shoe. He wouldn't do that. That was the job that was reserved for slaves. Because you understand, in that culture, you have filth in the street. You have defilement in the street. Sometimes you had open sewers in the streets. And for the Jew, those feet were defiled and filthy and should not be touched by a clean person. We reserve that for the slaves those who are less than worthy to be disciples. Yet John himself, John the baptizer, he didn't even consider himself to be as worthy as a slave. I don't even think I am worthy to even unstrap the sandal, much less clean his feet. John couldn't have placed himself in a lower position than he does here. He testifies that he was not worthy to serve as Christ's foot-washing slave. Yet Jesus says he's the greatest of the prophets. He had a greater message, that's true. But he had a greater humility. That's what made him great in the kingdom of God. That's what makes you great in the kingdom of God. The last will be first. He didn't seek the preeminence. He saw the superiority and the majesty of Jesus as preeminent. He sought that. He sought in every part of his being to glorify Jesus. We need to have that attitude and we're called on to serve Christ as well. Just think about that. Do you have the attitude of John here? That you would do whatever it takes, even the lowly thing in your family, on your job, or in public ministry, you would do whatever it takes to bring him the preeminence, the first place, to bring him honor. That's a challenge for us today. That requires dying to self, being filled with God's word to control our attitudes and our hearts. That requires discipline. That requires the Spirit of God working in us. Mark 1.7 says, I think, volumes about why that Jesus called John the greatest prophet. In Matthew 23.11, there on your outline, Jesus said, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus exalted John. It doesn't get any better than that. The Son of God says about this man, you are great because of your humility and this ministry that you've been given. 
But then Jesus, remember last week, goes on to say that the weakest Christian is greater than John the Baptist. I think the weakest Christian, the smallest Christian, the most feeblest Christian is greater than John the Baptist because we recognize the greater revelation and the greater grace that's been given to us. You know, we've been given this great mercy and forgiveness by God, not because we earned it, not because we deserved it, but because God initiated it by sacrificing His Son. That should make us humble in our own eyes and in the eyes of Christ. We need humble slaves for Christ, willing to decrease so that His ministry would increase. We're not building our kingdom. I listened to a guy the other night. I'll tell you who he is, but he's a heretic, so you don't need to know his name. He's, he's out of the camp. But he said, I built my ministry on this, and I built my ministry on that, and my ministry will stand. And I thought, no, it will never stand. It is your ministry, and it will perish with thee. It is not built on Christ. It is not exalting Christ. It is exalting self, money, prosperity, all which will perish when Christ the King returns. Only what is built on Christ will remain. Everything else will be shaken. But what is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and the apostles will stand firm. Now, Mark 1.8. Mark 1.8. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What he does here is Mark's telling us that John humbly pointed to Jesus. He pointed the people of God to Jesus because Jesus' majesty was greater. And he did so by pointing out that Jesus' ministry was superior. He emphasized that Christ's ministry was superior to his ministry. His ministry looked important, and it was. He was calling Israel back to God to repent of their sins, to be baptized, confess their their sin, and be obedient to follow God and follow after the Messiah when He came. But He's saying that what I'm doing is symbolic, what I'm doing is important, but what Jesus does is the reality. I'm giving you the picture, He is bringing you the substance. John states that the one who is greater than Him, the one who is greater, which is Jesus, is doing the greater ministry, the greater work. Verse 8, he announces that Christ will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, immerse you with the Holy Spirit. Again, Jesus would not just merely illustrate the purifying of the heart through baptism like John. Jesus will actually wash away sin's stain by bleeding on a cross in our place. Jesus actually washes away sin's stain by immersing us in God the Holy Spirit's power. You're immersed in Christ by the Spirit of God, placed in Him, covered in Him, completed in Him, sealed by Him. Believers are immersed once and for all by the regenerating work of God, God the Holy Spirit. Look with me at Titus 3. Titus 3 states that basically God Himself, it's God, the Lord Jesus, God the Son, who grants us eternal life and forgiveness, and He does so with power through the Holy Spirit, and He does so so that we would obey Him as Lord. I think what's important in this, when we read about the immersion of the Holy Spirit, the baptizing of the Holy Spirit, being placed into Christ by the power, the regenerating power of God the Holy Spirit, is you are immersed and distinctly set apart and empowered by the distinctly Holy One. Therefore, there should be a distinction in your life. Jesus' ministry 
set us apart distinctly. Jesus' ministry of regeneration through the power of the Holy Spirit makes us able and willing to obey the Lord. Willing to obey the Lord. Now, we're going to fail at that. We all know that. But there is the willing that the Spirit of God compels us toward. We desire this, even in the midst of our failures, because we are set apart by the Holy One. Look what it says in 3.4. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Now, I think this is all in reference to the incarnation of Christ. When His goodness appeared. When God's goodness appeared. When Jesus became incarnate. When people could see what God was like through God the Son. When people saw this, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. We're not saved by works. We're saved by the one who was incarnated. But according to His own mercy, here's what He says, By the washing of regeneration... And renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Then He says this, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Just interesting here, as he talks about the results of being immersed or baptized or regenerated by the power of the Spirit, is actually going to cause us to be devoted to good works. Devoted to works that would glorify God, our Savior. When you see that word regenerate, it also could be translated born again. You have something that's been generated. You had a sinful heart that was generated when you were born, right? You had a sinful heart that sinned. By nature and sinned willfully, and then by God's grace, when this revelation of Christ appeared and you saw who He was, when God the Holy Spirit uncovered your sin and exposed it, and then He pointed you irresistibly to Jesus, He regenerated that heart. He took away the stony heart and gave you a heart of flesh. He circumcised the uncircumcised heart, and He caused you to be born anew, and set apart as distinct by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want us to understand something as Christians. We are saved to glorify Jesus. We are saved to glorify God. And there is no glorifying of God if you are living in sin. It is a denial of the Spirit's work that is calling you to be distinct. So therefore, either you're not immersed into Him Or immediately you're in some sort of sin you need to repent of and turn back to Him. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. You see this again. This idea of being immersed and regenerated unto eternal life and granted forgiveness and power to obey the Lord Jesus through the Spirit's work in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, He's talking about people who are habitually unrepentant, okay? People who will not repent and they they seek their pleasures in their sin and not in repentance and turning to Christ. There's no ambiguity, by the way, here, right? If a person lives an unrepentant, habitual sin, they're not in the kingdom. They're not born again. They're not regenerated, no matter what they say. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who will not repent of these things will not go to heaven. There must be repentance. Where does the ability to turn from these kinds of deep sins, these deeply depraved and defiled sins that start from within and work their way out of us, how can we turn from those if we're dead and consumed by these? We can't turn on our own. That's his point. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But. That's a good word here. This describes some of you. Actually, it describes some of you here today. But. You were washed. Now, it doesn't say you went and got washed. It doesn't say you washed yourself. It says you were washed. That's the act of another doing it unto you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who washed you, who set you apart, who declared you righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to be set apart, immersed into Christ, distinct reflectors of the Lord Jesus. That's, I think, the Spirit's work in us, is to reflect the one who saved us. Now, that work is progressive. That's the work of sanctification, and we know that here. It's not instantaneous, and some of you are more righteous today than you were yesterday. But there is a continued desire in the heart of the Christian for repentance and obedience to the Lord Jesus so that He would be praised. We would be subdued, and He would be preeminent in our witness. Mark 1.8 tells us that Christ's ministry would actually cleanse all those who trust in Him. Isn't that good news? John pictured it in his baptism. Jesus accomplished it. John's ministry of preparation was great, but Jesus' ministry of regeneration was greater. John was illustrating that the work could be done only by Christ. He would point to one who could accomplish it. Christ's Spirit is what cleanses us. That's what makes us acceptable in God's sight. That's good news. That's good news for defiled sinners, and it's also good news for saved saints that are sinning, okay? It's good news. We can't change ourselves in salvation, and we really can't change ourselves apart from the Spirit in sanctification. That is still the Spirit's work. We need to recognize that. We of ourselves are trapped in this body of flesh, and we don't want to change fleshly habits. It is the Spirit of God who causes us to change. Apart from the Spirit's work, we are doomed. Look what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah 13 and verse 23. just want to show you something really beautiful here as we come to the end of this. Something frightening on our own and something beautiful in Christ here. Apart from Christ's work through the Spirit and His power, apart from that, We are doomed in our own flesh. We could not change our spiritual condition apart from God's active work. And we can't even sanctify ourselves again without this continued work of the Spirit. Because here's what he says in Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? No. That's the answer. Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Okay, so what he's saying is, If they could change, you could be good. 
But because they can't change and it's obvious, that also tells us that you who are accustomed and ingrained in evil, in depravity, defiled, dead in sins, in your lusts and pleasures, you can't do good either. Apart from God changing us through the gospel, through the proclamation of what His Son took upon Himself on the cross and granted to us by grace, apart from that, we will remain defiled in our sins for eternity under God's wrath. But God. But God the Son can change all that. Mark 1.40. This is the difference between trying to earn our salvation, trying to change our condition, trying to turn a new leaf, reform ourselves. This is the difference between that and the monergistic work of God Himself. Without the work of God, without the work of God's energy, His Spirit, we can't do anything. But one touch from God the Son can change everything. And a leper who couldn't change himself came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched a defiled sinner. And he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And so it is with us. By the regenerating power and cleansing work of the Holy Spirit, we, the defiled and the dead in our sins, are transformed by His grace, by the Lord's touch. It is through Christ and the gospel about Him that we, the church, have been brought into union with Him and brought into a sweet union with Him because we have had what separated us from God removed. You recognize that our sins were dealt with completely. They weren't ignored. They were laid on on Christ and He was wounded for our transgressions so that we could be set apart for His glory. This is our gospel. And this gospel must be announced by God's people to the world, to those who are yet to be saved. Just as in John the Baptizer's day, we are to do this plainly. We are to announce the message plainly to show men how God views their sin and opens the door of salvation through Jesus Christ. And we are to announce this primarily to show the glory and majesty and cleansing ministry of Jesus, to exalt our King. That's your commission. That's my commission. Not just because I'm in the pulpit or Nate's in the pulpit. This is your commission as Christians. You all are messengers of the risen Jesus. John proclaimed his message plainly and primarily because there was nothing more glorious to say. There was nothing greater to bring God honor and to bring men hope than this message about Jesus It's the only message that calls us out of spiritual death and depravity. It's the only message that can cause us to see the beauty of Jesus, our need of grace, and the reception of forgiveness through His work, not our own. We need to announce this news. And we need to do it like John the baptizer. We need to do it with humility and with boldness. Because the power of God is in the gospel, not in us. And that gospel is unchangeable. It still produces the same thing in this generation as it did in the generation that he spoke to in Mark's gospel. It still produces repentance in sinners. It still produces forgiveness, confession, 
and obedience to the Lordship of Christ if they trust in His accomplished work. Now, I think here today, most of us have believed this message. And we should therefore be encouraged by this message. And therefore, we should also be implored by this message to be those who are announcing this message more faithfully. But there's always a possibility there's some here today who have not trusted in this message yet. And they feel their sins exposed. They see their need of forgiveness. And today is the day of salvation for you. You need to repent of your sins and confess those sins to God. You have offended a holy and righteous God and you need His forgiveness or you'll stand under His judgment for eternity. And today, if you will confess those sins and trust in Him and obey His commands, you will give proof that He is truly here calling you today. But there will be evidence of your salvation. It's not a mere profession. It is something that God Himself possesses you with. He immerses you in this so that you and I would be a gospel witness in this life and in eternity. You know, I heard a sermon this week. It was talking about a man who was a famous preacher. We all know and love. His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he spoke about how that when Spurgeon said when, when he would come to die and he would enter into glory, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to find an angel and he's going to preach the gospel to an angel because they don't know what we have received. He couldn't quit evangelizing even in heaven. He wanted to bring God glory even with the angels because they haven't received what you have received in Christ. It's just forgiveness at the cost of Christ's own life. It's a glorious message. That's the good news. It's unchangeable, it's immutable, and it's powerful. So preach it. Preach the word. Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of the gospel that has transformed our sinful souls. We thank you for being immersed into the truth by you, God, the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the equipping that comes through your word and that revelation of your word by your spirit. We thank you, Father, that you have sought us, you have bought us with Christ's own blood, you have drawn us, you have drug us to yourself when we were kicking and screaming, yet you opened our eyes to see our sin and see that we needed to run to the Savior. And in your irresistible grace, you caused us to do just that. We ran with nothing to bring to you but our sin, and you gave us the righteousness of Christ so that we would be distinct and that we would point in our message to the Lord Jesus and so that the world would see His preeminence. He deserves first place in our life, in our attitudes, and even in eternity in our worship. There, Jesus, we will sing around the throne and behold the scars on your hands and on your side and on your head and on your back. And we will be reminded over and over and over and over throughout eternity that we are here by grace, by your finished, accomplished, perfect work. We will sing about the gospel forever. Let us be faithful to sing about it now. I pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. How many names 
I'd need a savior. I need you, savior.